bodies are beautiful. They, I mean, you can be beautiful at any size, but not necessarily healthy at any size, if that makes sense. And, and one of the better stories I think is unhealthy at any size is this idea that if someone has a normal weight, that they are healthy. And that does not mean that at all. Most of us who have a normal weight are still unhealthy. We just don't have that obvious manifestation of disease visible to the person standing next to us in the checkout line. And that's, that's one of the sad parts of obesity is it's visible right there. The other manifestations of poor health that 93% of us have at least one of them, those other ones are hidden. It doesn't mean we're healthy if we're small. And it doesn't mean not beautiful if we're big. It, it, I mean, beauty and health are two very different things. Welcome to Nutrition Without Compromise, a podcast brought to you by Orlo Nutrition. We believe that nutrition shouldn't be an either or, that you should never have to sacrifice your morals for your health or that of our home planet. Join natural products veteran Karina Belizzi and experts from around the globe as they discuss healthy solutions that are better for you and better for the planet. Welcome to another interview episode of Nutrition Without Compromise. Today, we're going to step into a deeper discussion about health and goal achievement as it relates to weight loss and, in particular, metabolic health. To offer us her perspective and support our shared learning, I'm joined by Dr. Courtney Younglove. Dr. Courtney Younglove is a physician that's board certified in obesity medicine and obstetrics and gynecology as well. She's been practicing clinical medicine now for over 25 years and recently earned a fellowship from the Obesity Medicine Association back in 2021. This is one of the highest honors bestowed upon members who demonstrate dedication and commitment to the clinical treatment of obesity and obesity-related diseases. So really, we couldn't be joined by anyone better for this discussion today. Beyond that, she is the founder and medical director of Heartland Weight Loss. This is an insurance-based obesity medicine practice with clinics in Overland Park, Kansas, and also Lawrence, Kansas. So if you're in Kansas, please look her up. She recently became the chief medical officer of Journeys Metabolic. This is a solution for tackling our metabolic health crises at scale, and she is also the founder of WellMe, a point solution bringing obesity medicine directly to employers. Now, before I bring her up, remember that this podcast is offered as a resource to educate, inform, and even entertain. It is not intended to treat, diagnose, or cure any ailments. There is no patient-provider relationship established between me, your host, nor our guests like Dr. Courtney Younglove. With that out of our way, let's bring her right up and get to this discussion. Dr. Courtney Younglove, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Now, I know I will falter on this, but can I call you Courtney? <laughs> yes, absolutely. That's my name. Amazing. Now, before we really dig into this topic, I'd really like to hear a bit about your backstory and what really brought you to this moment today. It's a story. So I went into medicine, obviously, because I loved the field of medicine and it ended up choosing obstetrics and gynecology because it gave me a nice balance between surgical interventions, long-term patient care. There was a lot of variety there and I loved it. It was a great field. I entered that field in, God, it was the late nineties. Um, right as this obesity epidemic was just taking off. Um, and over the course of my obstetrics and gynecology career, I just watched patients getting sicker and sicker and sicker. And it just felt like we were on this roller coaster that we couldn't get off. And patients kept asking me for help. And I just lifted my hands. I 
didn't know what to tell them. It hadn't been a part of my training. I was struggling with my own health at the time. And so sitting there, I just felt helpless. So I went to a conference in, uh, God, somewhere in Arizona back then, run by the Obesity Medicine Association, thinking maybe I'll get something I can use to help my patients. Because obviously the biggest concern that people kept bringing me was excess weight. It seemed to revolve around that. As my toe in that water, I started to realize that was a whole field of medicine that I didn't even know existed. And it seemed to be a decent path to learning how I could help patients. So I went down that path. It took a few years to get board certified there, started trying to wrap my head around that practice of medicine and integrate that into a gynecologic obstetric field, which was much more complicated than I could ever realize. And during that path, I also started realizing that weight was also a secondary concern. There was something upstream from weight that really needed to be addressed as well, which led me down the path of metabolic health. And I go down rabbit holes pretty easily. Eventually decided there's nobody tackling this metabolic problem. And so I opened up a clinic. I just gave my notice to my obstetrics gynecology group and said, I'm starting a practice and did it, which was in hindsight, insane, but I just really felt called to doing it and it just needed to be done. And then it just took off and I am a consummate learner. And so being in that obesity medicine space through all of these past 10 years of chaos that has erupted has been very exciting. It's been overwhelming. And it's really just honed me in on that path that if we're going to treat obesity, which is a passion of mine, we also have to treat metabolic health. And so it just keeps evolving. Well, and to your point, coming from the OBGYN path makes a lot of sense in certain stripes too, because so often women gain weight around their pregnancy and then have another pregnancy and another pregnancy, and it becomes harder and harder to keep it off. I mean, I found I couldn't really lose the baby weight until I stopped breastfeeding. And my first child, I had breastfed until he was almost two. It was a lot of extra time to keep extra weight on. And then we get used to this. We get used to it, yes. And then you have another baby, potentially. Then you have another baby. And then you're so busy raising children that actually tending to your own health becomes just not a priority. And then you go into menopause. And then that's another hammer that just gets pounded on women. And so it's just a series of events that really makes it so hard for women. Well, the thing that troubles me about this too, is we are acclimated to the idea that this is now normal. Yes. So we get used to it and then we get acclimated to this idea that it's normal. Now you are in the center of the country and I've traveled through Kansas a few times. And as I traveled through the middle States, I often see, wow, there's a lot more obese people here. And being somebody who's in San Francisco Bay Area, where activity is much more common, we don't have the long winters, I can go running any day year round and find somewhere comfortable to do so here unless it's just dumping sheets of rain. Now, we add to that seasonality where there's times it's harder to be as active or you have, let's say, not as good of access to healthy foods and these insults just keep compounding. So I don't think it's an accident that you have your clinic thriving in Kansas is what I'm kind of getting at here. And it also, to me, is something that is, it's insane that we've accepted this as the new normal. Yes, we have. It's even worse in the South than it is in the Midwest, but it's bad in the Midwest. And it's very culturally acceptable, yes, um, to have excess weight and to have chronic disease too. I mean, that's where I just want to shake my head 
it's not normal to have hypertension. It's not normal to have type two diabetes or prediabetes or fatty liver, but we've normalized it, which is really hard. And we've created a story as a country that this is a genetic problem. And so therefore it's inevitable that I'm going to get these things, including excess weight, which makes it even harder to fight that process. So I think this gets to the crux of a conversation that's uncomfortable to have in today's culture world too, because at the same time, we have this movement towards body positivity and self-acceptance. Love the skin you're in, which doesn't necessarily mean you shouldn't seek to also improve and achieve health goals. So I think these two things sometimes lie in conflict. And so when you're talking about something like, yes, and we want to help you achieve your health goals. Yes, and we want you to feel comfortable in the shoes you're walking in. You shouldn't have pain just walking because you're carrying extra weight. So these, it's uncomfortable. Yes. And two things can be true. I mean, bodies are beautiful. They, I mean, you can be beautiful at any size, but not necessarily healthy at any size, if that makes sense. And one of the better stories I think is unhealthy at any size is this idea that if someone has a normal weight, that they are healthy. And that does not mean that at all. Most of us who have a normal weight are still unhealthy. We just don't have that obvious manifestation of disease visible to the person standing next to us in the checkout line. And that's one of the sad parts of obesity is it's visible right there. The other manifestations of poor health that 93% of us have at least one of them, those other ones are hidden. It doesn't mean we're healthy if we're small. And it doesn't mean we're not beautiful if we're big. I mean, beauty and health are two very different things. So given that you have been so deeply connected to thousands of patients who want more than anything to lose weight most of the time. And sometimes it's just they want to improve their health and they could even be underweight. There are obviously millions of people who are suffering this way. So what do you think it will take and why do you think they're struggling to achieve this so much? Is there something that's common and clearly evident to you? Individually, patients want things so badly and there's so much desire and grit and goals and strength there. I think it's our cultural environment. It's like gravity. It just pulls everybody right back down again. It's like trying to tell people not to breathe, that you can hold your breath for a while, but then that overwhelming drive pulls you back down again. And for most of us, we're immersed in this weight positive world where everyone around us, it's like a school of fish that are moving. It's really hard to stop it individually when the entire system is pushing us to eat this way, to move this way, to accept this way, to live this 2,000 daily choices we have to make that individually affect our health in the context of a greater world, it's just really hard to change that. It, it's just not an individual choice that we can just say, I'm going to do this and it's all going to be fine. I think we as, we're community, we're a group effort at a lot of things and that group mentality and that group normalcy is working against us. So have you found that there are common threads here among your patients who have been successful in making big improvements in their health? Yes, and they never do it alone. I mean, we talk about this in our clinic all the time is bring somebody with you on that journey. And if you don't have somebody with you, you need to find somebody with you, preferably many people with you. Is If you want to eat well and you want to move often, but yet you leave your work environment and go home to a family that doesn't eat well and that doesn't move often, or you go to work every day and you're among people 
where it's normalized to sit and eat unhealthy foods, you're just constantly immersed in that environment that's working against what you want to be. It's I think the common thread when people are able to break through that is they've joined a group of people where their desired behavior is that normal behavior. It's easy to do that thing. It's I mean, we go back to James Clear all the time. He's one of my very favorite people about habit formation and systems changes. I mean, he's amazing the way he puts it, but I am around a group of women at this point in my life on purpose that do yoga. So it's very normal for me to do yoga and it's very abnormal if I don't do yoga. So it just feels very natural to do that. But 20 years ago, I don't think I knew anybody that did yoga. So if I wanted to do that, it would just be odd. And there would probably be people that would raise their eyebrows at me at that time of life and go, you're going to do that thing. And so it's that peer pressure is very real. I'm around people that go to the farmer's market. I'm around people that eat salads for lunch. I'm around people that drink sparkling water. And so for me, doing those things is much easier to do because it's the normal thing to do. You've created the lifestyle. I've created that, yes. And it took work. And of course, there's people that don't do that in my life, but there are a lot of people that do those things. So it's just easier. And so I think when patients do that, they create that or they have people around that them that normalize it. Yeah. And speaking from the role of a mother of two young boys who are six and almost nine, it's incredibly challenging to even get enough time with my girlfriends to say, oh, well, I do yoga with them and things like that. So from a personal perspective, just with the first podcast of this first episode of this podcast at the beginning of the year, I shared how to achieve health goals, even if you are trying to do it a little bit on your own. And I want to share this because I think it's important. You can create the community that you want to help achieve the health that you want, but sometimes it's just not practical to have them with you on the journey as much. And so I really think that if you are just to put a few tools in place, like, I don't know, create a health log, be honest with yourself, just write down what your goals are and check in on a routine basis. It doesn't mean that you have to be seeing a metabolic doctor on a routine basis to walk towards something, but it really does start with documentation in some way. And I mean, I went through and I got the splurge of a smartwatch to help me on my own health journey because, you know, I'm also, I think I'm entering perimenopause. I'm still regular and everything like that, but it's on the horizon, right? And I wanted to be honest with myself on the daily. The thing that I found with with young children is it's far easier okay, well, maybe I have pizza more often than I otherwise might. I had some of those chicken nuggets that came with frozen, like I made them at home, but I had some of them. And was I being honest about how much salt I was even consuming? And so this helps me because now I'm logging my food on a device that's it's connected to my phone. I can just go and like make all those changes really quickly. And on the days where I eat processed food, I was shocked at how much sodium I was taking in. And so I don't think people are even honest about this particular thing because you talk about things like hypertension. Well, if you're consuming a lot of sodium and it could just even be, oh, well, I had canned soup and I had that with like bread that was buttered. And then I had that with earlier in the day, I had a snack bar on the go. And well, there was that jerky I had, right? But it was just a little bit. All these things were just a little bit. Then suddenly you're actually retaining more water and maybe you didn't drink enough water to actually compensate for that. So you're not flushing stuff out the same way. And you actually end up carrying more weight. And some of that's water weight, but it goes right into the next day and you have these stores still. And now maybe you're more hungry because you're more actually thirsty and you're not giving yourself enough water. 
And so these things can compound. And just through the course of doing this for three weeks now, from my perspective, I haven't eaten any less. In fact, I've most days eaten more because I'm like, wow, I'm really running behind on my calories. And my body composition has changed pretty dramatically in just like three weeks. So I've gone from being, I don't want to give exact numbers here, but I've lost about seven pounds, which that's good, while retaining my muscle mass, which is really hard and actually putting on a little bit of muscle mass. Now, I'm also lifting heavy weight. And so that wasn't entirely surprising to me. But to even maintain while losing weight is really, really hard. And sometimes it takes a device or even like a body composition scale to help you track those things along the way so you don't lose weight unhealthfully. And eating more is sometimes it makes like, oh, well, I'm not really that hungry, but I haven't hit my macros today. And that's the thing I have to keep reminding myself, like I need to get enough calories to be able to lose weight without going on this pendulum swing of loss and then weight gain, right? Yes, that's a terrible scale to be on. That yo-yo is awful. When we watch body composition, that yo-yoing effect is terrible. So hard on the body. And it also makes it harder to achieve your health goals because your motivation starts to wane, right? So you're suddenly like, well, I did all this work and now I weigh five pounds more, but I did all this work. Like, why is it going like this? And it's going that way because you weren't able to stay consistent because you weren't actually nourishing your body enough. Right. And that's one of those keys that as I got into obesity medicine and started really digging into pathophysiology is most of the time when we have excess weight, almost all the time, actually, we have something called insulin resistance. And with insulin resistance, if you drop caloric intake and you don't have the normal metabolic flexibility that we're meant to have, which is a function of insulin resistance, the body will cannibalize muscles in order to create substrate for energy. And it will lower metabolic rate. I mean, the body reacts very predictably. So when that insulin resistance piece is flipped and then we starve ourselves, we all of a sudden decrease our muscle mass and decrease our metabolic rate. It's very devastating. And that's the body trying to find homeostasis. With metabolic health, you've got to fix that insulin resistance piece then you can lower the caloric rate. And guess what? Your hunger hormones do not compensate and your metabolic rate doesn't decrease. I mean, it's just a different method and it's a more long-term method to achieving weight loss than starvation. Starvation we know doesn't work. We keep trying it. And the reason it doesn't work is in the presence of insulin resistance, it doesn't work. And if we're trying to lose weight, it's usually because we have insulin resistance. It's just kind of this chicken or the egg problem. But that's really that metabolic health piece that matters so much. The other question I have that relates to this is really how much water people need to be getting, because I think we're also really not honest about this with ourselves. We think, well, I drink beverages, right? Do they count too? Like my cup of coffee here, which could actually be a counter count. So what are your thoughts on that? If you look at various studies, there's all kinds of calculations you can do. I used to just tell my patients, just make sure you're peeing clear. I mean, once you're peeing clear, you're usually well hydrated. It's a good indication, but not everybody wants to look at that. And first thing in the morning, you're not. And after you take a vitamin, you're not. So there's all those little asterisks. At least eight glasses of water a day. You're going to get water out of your food. And if you're eating a lot of whole foods, you're getting more water out of it than if you're eating ultra processed foods. So there's variables there. But I mean, I try to get at least 64 ounces a day. Yeah. I don't think you need to do gallons and gallons, but I just, if you're peeing clear, you're doing all right. That's great. I love that. 
Now, on a lot of these applications that you might use, they typically have water input too. So now what I find myself doing is anytime I'm logging food, I also log water and that reminds me to drink more water. And so I find there's a couple of positive benefits from that. One is that I'm sleeping a little bit more soundly. And while I might wake up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, it doesn't seem to affect how quickly I fall back to sleep. So that part has been kind of normal. But I think part of that is that I'm just not as parched, especially as we're in this winter months and our heaters kicking on in the middle of the night sometimes or something like that, right? So that can create dry air. Well, I'm not as parched. So I think that's a good point. It can also reduce how hungry you feel when you're getting enough water. So as we bridge away from this conversation, just focused on water, I'd really just love for you to talk a little bit more about how we're able to scale this, like moving from one person at a time, an individual issue to something that we can more broadly kind of change and move for people. So we're all kind of marching back towards health and slimming that waistline, having less visceral fat, having less of this myopic idea that oh, our health problems are our genes faults. You know, what do you see moving? What do you think we can do? It's going to take multiple entities in multiple realms. And I think a big part of it is a lot of our incentives are aligned away from that. And that to me is the bigger problem is most of us individually want to be healthier people. I mean, if you talk to anyone they want to feel good. They want to be vibrant. They want to play with their children. They want to live long. They want to interact in the world without feeling run down. And it's that gravity that pulls them back. So I think we have to change things from a top down and a bottom up at the same time. And the top down piece is the really hard piece. There are a lot of corporate interests. There are a lot of big businesses whose interests align with us staying unhealthy. And it's I don't want to say it's a conspiracy. It's just look at the incentives. I mean, some of our biggest industries in this country are big healthcare, big food, and big pharma. And all of those profit off of people being sick or contribute to it. There's very few people that profit off of people being well. And so I don't know how you change those incentives, how you change that from the top down, I know there's good people working on it in various realms, and I think it will create a movement and there will be a tipping point, but it's going to take a lot of work. I mean, big food has a lot of pull. There's a lot of profit in you eating ultra-processed foods. Their profit margin is phenomenal. They want you to eat. Right. Just anything, like get it in a box with a wrapper, and then it's going to be convenient. We've sacrificed health for convenience. We have, and I get it. I love convenience too, but there's not a lot of people fighting from the broccoli growers of America to really push that backwards. And the big financial incentives in this country are aligned with subsidies for corn and soy and wheat, things that make ultra-processed foods. If we change the subsidies and all of a sudden we subsidize broccolis and peppers and eggs and chickens and fishes and all the other things, if those industries were subsidized, and the cost of those products way down, we could probably turn this around pretty quickly. But that's, I don't know how you change government. It's nothing I've really been involved in. Well, I have to just say, there's a reason that people on the lower rung of our economic ladder tend to be fatter and less healthy. 
They tend to have a lower lifespan, a shorter overall lifespan as well, and a definitely shorter health span because they're going to the less expensive foods, which tend to be more processed or much higher in fats and much lower in total nutrient content, like micronutrients, right? It's harder to eat protein rich also when you have lower economic, like just when you're in a lower economic status. And so these things are common. You survive on beans, rice, tortillas, fried things, funyuns or whatever, and you're not really feeding your body the same way. So convenient eating, I mean, I guess an apple is just as convenient as some of these other things, but I got to tell you recently, I go to buy an apple at the store. And first of all, they're pretty huge. They're like the size of like two fists because we've engineered them. Because we've engineered them, yes, because they're not quite apples anymore, but they're still better than a bag of onions. Right. And then they're also, so it's like a lot more than one serving typically. And then do you eat the whole thing in one serving? You cut it and you put it in the fridge. What do you do? And then the other part being that it was like $2 for an apple. And that didn't used to be the case. So to your point, subsidizing things that are healthy, helping people understand what a serving is, getting them to think about when am I full versus overfull. And being comfortable in the kitchen too. I mean, there's a lot of convenience foods are actually more expensive than real foods in a lot of ways. I mean, going to, I mean, I have patients that swing through McDonald's and it's a $7 meal, which doesn't seem that expensive, but realistically you could go to the grocery store right behind you and get a rotisserie chicken and a package of frozen green beans and an apple and feed four people out of that for $10 or get two or three meals out of it. But when you're not comfortable in the kitchen because it's become a generational issue of we don't know how to do that, it takes an additional step to think that through. I mean, there's a lot more to it than just cost. I get a Costco order once a week with a lot of food in it. I have three teenage boys and they eat a lot of food. And if I were to take them out or feed them from a convenience place, it would cost me a lot more than what it costs me to feed them through Costco. But I also have a skill set of, I know I can cook on the grill 15 chicken breasts at once and I can use an electric knife and cut them up into squares all at once. And that all of a sudden becomes a great deal of meals in a hurry in my life, which I need. Right. Well, I think that's a very practical approach. Also, think about buying some of these foods in bulk. You can get a lot of rice and a lot of beans. Instead of going to open something with a can opener, you spend a little bit of time in your kitchen. I mean, there are things that help us to create a more convenient lifestyle, like air fryers and a rice cooker or instant pot as well, so that you can combine these things in the morning, go off for the day, and it's scheduled to like start cooking when you need it. You get home and now you have this healthier meal that didn't cost you an arm and a leg either along the way and which took minimal prep time. Right. Become very convenient. Yeah, I 100% agree. I mean, I was a single mom for with three kids for many, many, many years working as a gynecologist. So you can imagine my hours. And so I really just out of absolute necessity had to figure out crockpot meals and mass production of food. I was forced to learn it, but God, it's a wonderful skill to have. Yeah. I'm with you. I have the things that I buy at Costco, but I also have built in a commitment to shop twice a week. So I'm getting fresh produce twice a week. I do one middle of the week and one on the weekend. And the weekend jaunt is to the farmer's market where I'm buying local produce without any packaging at all. So it's not wrapped in cellophane or anything like that. And then I look at my midweek shopping venture as more of the pinch hit, like, okay, what started to go or what do I need more of? 
and also the things that aren't available at my local farmer's market because they weren't in season here locally. So building in these small lifestyle pitches, then suddenly I've got healthy food that's fresh, that's prepared in my home for the most part. We eat out rarely. Now, this week as I'm having my cabinets refinished, I got takeout one night and I was surprised at how much it cost me in one stretch. But then I was like, okay, this is lunches tomorrow. And I will tell you, there was a lot more salt in that food than I would typically put in my own too. And so greater intake of sodium, greater retention of water, that scale might just move on the day if I chose to get on it every day. So this gets back to another habit that I like to encourage people to do, which is not weigh themselves every single day. I was just going to say that. I can't agree with daily weighing. It's terribly destructive because it isn't a good measure of what is it that's changing. It's often water weight that's changing and that's irrelevant in terms of health unless you have severe hypertension and that water weight or renal failure or congestive heart failure where that extra water weight is detrimental. For most of us, it's water. Yeah. Especially I had a salty meal last night because of a construction project and I know that that would change. And it would be demotivating if I got on the scale this morning and saw that. So therefore, take a step back and say, I do, you know, for me, it's Saturday mornings. So after the finish of the week, and I weigh myself and do the body comp scale and log it all and see the movement. And it's going in the direction I want it to, which is really great. And it's reinforcing, therefore, the habits that I'm instilling every day. Yes. Body composition is just essential. We do it in our clinic in Kansas every month on every patient. And it goes into a spreadsheet. And I mean, I know I've discouraged people when I've said, don't get excited about that five pound weight loss. That's water. I don't care. Clinically, that means nothing to me that you're down five pounds of water. If you're up a pound of body fat, I care a lot more about that. So it's really trying to retrain people to look at what is it that's changing. Now, recently there was a Netflix documentary, which actually shared with the world a twin study where they put some of the twins on a, well, half of the twins, like, so one of each, right, would be on a vegan diet that was more healthy. And the other would be on a healthy omnivore diet. And I don't know if you've had the opportunity to see this yet. I haven't yet. Actually, one of my family members has sent me a little, you should watch this. I don't watch much television at all. So it'll probably be a bit before I see it. I get it. I looked at it as homework. So I'm just going to summarize quickly for people. You would anticipate that the vegan diet people may have lost more weight and potentially even lost more muscle, but because their diets were so healthfully architected with total calories and macros in mind, what they actually found universally between the twins was that the people who were on the vegan diet, actually, they lost more total visceral body fat than the group that was on the omnivore diet, even though they were on comparable nutrients levels and both eating healthy diets. So what's the primary difference there? Perhaps more saturated fat, a little bit more calorie density, more meat protein, which resulted in a slight difference in this capacity. Now, depending on how committed these twins were to the lifestyle, some of them did better than the others. And I think Outlook also had something to do with their success. But I think that was really interesting because I had thought that the vegetarian vegan group was potentially going to lose more muscle mass and that didn't prove out. Yeah, I'm fairly agnostic in terms of vegan, vegetarian, keto, paleo, all the different things. I mean, I think the key for all of them is 
whole foods, right? And any diet made up primarily of whole unprocessed foods is going to have pretty good health outcomes. There's going to be tweaks there. Most of the meat in this country, I assume they were in this country. I think it was a Stanford study, wasn't it? Most of the meat in this country is very ultra processed. And I didn't look at how much it was, are they eating processed meats? Are they eating grass-fed beef? I mean, I think if you were eating a paleo diet made up of grass-fed beef and free range chickens and free range eggs and wild caught salmon, the health benefits are probably phenomenal. But if it is USDA beef, grain-fed beef, and it's processed pork and it's antibiotic-fed chickens and these terrible eggs that have almost just pale yellow yolks, it's they're not great healthy protein to start with. It's still better than an ultra-processed food diet. So again, it depends. What was interesting about this particular study in the Netflix documentary is that they actually monitored and gave them like, this is the meal, this is all the food you're going to eat. So kind of like a meal kit delivery for the course of the week at the beginning of the study, but then they translated it to, okay, now you go and do the shopping and you put it in practice. So that's the less regimented. So I imagine that the health of the meat sources they were getting probably shifted a bit because people make decisions based on price. Oh, the organic chicken's this much and not organic chicken is this much. The same thing with eggs. Like I pay for a dozen eggs close to $10. Most people are paying closer to five. So it does vary. I also, when we eat omnivore food, like I made the choice to go regenerative organic. And so I'm buying meats in bulk that are shipped to me from regenerative organic farms that costs a little bit more. (laughs) Often a lot more. (laughs) Yeah. But at the same time, when I'm cooking meat for my family now, I have more faith in its quality and that it's not just like another cut type of delivery of more corn and more soy and more wheat and more glyphosate and more pollution and more concentrated animal feeding operation support (laughs) that I don't want. I always tell my patients, you are what you eat, but you're also what your food eats. And if your food's eating Roundup and corn pellets, then you're essentially eating Roundup and corn pellets, which is terribly sad. I know it all makes sense, right? And it's terrifying and hard to keep all of that out. So I think the message here is just get into the kitchen and try to be mindful of your sources of foods, right? And do the best you can. I mean, I have a small urban farm in Kansas, funny because I grew up in the middle of the city, but, and I had chickens for a long time and their eggs were phenomenal, but it was so much work. And finally was like, I'm just going to go buy these eggs at the farmer's market. It's really not worth the upkeep that it requires to keep chickens and keep the predators away from chickens. And when it's below zero, keeping the heater going in the chicken coop and it became more work than it was worth. Yeah, unless you love it. So it's, it's like, and <laughs> love it. I do grow a lot of my own food just because that's fairly easy, but it's a lot of work. There's a lot of nuances there. It's not a simple just be this. I mean, in our clinic, we have a lot of people that come in saying, I'm trying to be a vegetarian or a vegan, and it's really hard. And what we find is most of them, we call them carbitarians. They're just a processed food carb overloading diet, and it's really unhealthy. And so I'd rather get them to more balanced diet to get that protein level up, even if it's not a perfect protein. There's no perfect answer unless you live in a world that you can get all that wonderful protein and access the farmer's market all the time. And it's hard. Yeah. Agreed. 
Now, there are also solutions like I can buy rice and regenerative beans and stuff like that and store it dry state and then soak them and cook them as needed. That's inexpensive way. That's an inexpensive way to get enough protein and to have it be plant sourced and more locally sourced as well, because there are some regenerative farms here in California that I can go to for the beans and grains. It's harder to get to, maybe a little more expensive, not something I can just buy off the grocery store shelf for the most part. So again, it takes a little extra effort, but it's all about how much you want to put in and, and what's going to work for you and your family. And where your priorities lie. Life is busy. I mean, I get it. Most of us have a limited amount of time. Most of us spend several hours of our day staring at a screen, not because it puts money in our pocketbook, though. It's, it's because it's joyful and pleasant. And if we allocate some of that time to food preparation, but we also have to prioritize it and then we have to be comfortable with it. If it's going to take away our precious time and energy and we're uncomfortable doing it and the people around us don't want us to do it. I mean, again, that's just hit after hit after hit, right? If the kids are going to whine and cry about this because they want frozen chicken nuggets, at the end of the day, you're probably going to cave because it's your extra time and your extra effort. And then it's an emotional battle and your relationship is going to be strained because of it. I mean, there's just a lot working against us, but I think the more we do it, the more it becomes normal the easier it gets. The more you do something, the easier it gets. I mean, my children have fought against me in our dietary patterns for a very long time. And is what it is. And as they start driving and I say, well, now you can take your hard-earned money and go buy that stuff. I mean, I'm not going to say you cannot, but at the end of the day, you're going to come home and it's going to be free to eat the healthy food here. I'm going to win some of the time, not all the time. And eventually they'll come back to these habits. That's what you see with people as they grow up. I keep hoping. Yep that hopefully that's normalized to them. I think all children at the early phase go through this carb loving perspective where it's like all they want to eat is fried and like white and not very nutritious. But I still commit to making the food that the whole family's going to eat and I serve it and it's like, well, you'll eat if you're if you're hungry, you're going to eat it. And maybe they want to go get a Right. If you are hungry, you're going to eat it. If not, you're going to be hungry till tomorrow and guess what? You're going to eat the next one. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Now, another, I don't want to call this a fad or a craze, but it's seeming almost that way. But so many people are now going to something like Ozempic or other newer anti-obesity medications that have really exploded in popularity as one of the ways to treat this health epidemic we have of obesity and metabolic dishealth. Do you use them in your clinic? What is your perspective? I do. We've always, as an obesity medicine clinic, said these are wonderful tools to have. We have very little coverage for the newer anti-obesity medications in the Midwest. They just really, it's very difficult to find an employer that's covering them. So those have been almost out of reach for many of our patients. But we've used the older anti-obesity medications for a long time. Not in the same way that the narrative has really taken off. Um, we've always looked at it, because we're working on metabolic health, we work on this idea that you have to get that metabolic flexibility back. And doing that is a multi-step process. These anti-obesity medications do two things and not at the same degree for every person. There's a lot of nuances there, but they do decrease the physical hunger hormones that make you just physically want to eat. And then they decrease the food noise piece. And the food noise is really a result of that metabolic dysfunction, but it's that constant, I want food, it's there, there's donuts in the break room, I like donuts, donuts are in the break room, I could have a donut, it's just one, and that kind of that mental chatter that we all, as many of us, have around food. And so these medications can be really useful in quieting those things, 
so that we can do the things that need to be done to get that metabolic flexibility and insulin resistance back. And that's that deploying the whole foods and the essential protein and really getting rid of those ultra processed foods that worsen the underlying problem. And so we've used them for a long time of let's put these medicines on board so we can do the real work. Now, there's obviously people that just put those medicines on board and go, oh my God, the food noise is gone and I'm not hungry. So I don't have to do that work. And those are hard. And those are patients we really struggle with because why do that hard work when you're just not hungry anymore? But the problem is, is when the work doesn't get done, when that space is there, eventually biology kicks in. Eventually the hunger hormones come back. I mean, the newer medicines hold them back longer, which is lovely. But if you stop the medicines or if you kind of hit that ceiling, then those hunger hormones start to come back. And guess what? If that underlying problem is not fixed, those hunger hormones are back. You're hungry and the food noise comes back and then you're back to square one. So we look at them as wonderful tools to get the hard work done, not just to quiet the noise and get rid of the hunger hormones temporarily. It's just a different way of looking at it. So it's a, not very sexy, but it it's very efficacious long-term for a lot of people when they do it that way. So they're there. And what we do see all the time and the reason we're really adamant about body composition analysis is like I mentioned earlier, when you have insulin resistance and you drop the caloric load, the body goes and cannibalizes muscles to get a fuel source. And that, and so if we watch that body composition shifting for the worse, if we all of a sudden are losing lean mass, we're not losing fat mass, that's a huge red flag to me that we are not eating the way we should be eating while we're on these medications. And much to our patients' dismay, a lot of times we take them away. I mean, I don't want to be a part of someone losing muscle mass as they age. It seems like a terrible thing to latch onto as a physician. I don't want to create sarcopenia and frailty as we age because we're being a part of cannibalizing that muscle mass. So it's kind of that science, obesity medicine, metabolic medicine versus just taking a drug from your med spa. Sarcopenia, just so people are not confused by this term, is literally the medical term for age-related muscle loss, right? Mm -hmm. It's just not having enough muscle mass for the body you're carrying, for the bones and the organs and the fat mass. I mean, we definitely have what we call sarcopenic obesity, where we have excess weight, but it's disproportionately adipose tissue compared to the muscle mass. And those patients are very, very sick. They don't have enough muscle mass to carry the body. Yeah. So in this case too, I think, what did they say? Like one of the most important health tests that older adults have is the sit test. Like, can they sit by themselves without like having to hold on to something and get back up? And I know that sounds really, really simple to people, but the reality is that when we're in our late, late years, like if you're lucky enough to make it to 90 or 95, that is one of the most important indicators of your overall health, right? Yeah. And your grip strength. I mean, if you still have muscle mass in your hands to grab things, they're reflections of overall muscle mass. And it's important because once you miss a step or you trip over the cat toy on the floor, if you don't have the muscle mass and the fast twitch and the slow twitch fibers that allow you to grab your own body weight and restabilize it quickly, you fall. And we know that falls are devastating as we age, not because we fall and break our head or break our hip. We do. I mean, but we don't have the muscle mass to recover from those injuries and to rehabilitate ourselves from those injuries. And so we get immobilized from an injury and our muscle mass steeply declines and it wasn't good to begin with. 
And it's a very, very quick downhill spiral for a lot of us as we age. So that muscle organ is just amazing. It's just essential. Wow. So I think that helps people kind of have that rounder perspective. It sounds to me like you look at these drugs as almost like a spot treatment, like you use it while you need it and then work with your individuals to get them off of it. Yeah. And then with the goal to pull it away, idea. I mean, ideally, and that's the studies don't show that, but all the studies are funded by the pharma companies selling the drugs. So they're not going to study them in a, let's pull them off, right? I think that's up to us with boots on the ground as clinicians to say, can we pull them off? And just like any intervention, you may not be able to, right? You get somebody's acne under control with medications. Okay. You want to try to pull those medications away over time because now that the acne has gone and they've learned the skincare techniques and they've changed their diet to get rid of the foods that are causing the acne, can you start to pull it away? And maybe not. Maybe some people that really have such advanced disease that they can't pull them away. But I think most people, if we're using them for the right reason, we should be able to wean people off with the idea that, good Lord, life might happen and we might have to restart them four or five years later because the environment might have totally changed. They might be in a new place with new environment and all those controls that they've put in place have just deteriorated and we might need to relapse and regroup and and stay on it. I mean, it is a chronic disease that wants to come back. So if we think about it, these are tools. It's not the only tool. And there are probably other ways to help an individual get there if they don't need that level of support. Are there particular supplements that you lean to for your patients in general? I'm really curious about how you see things like probiotics or omega-3s. Dan, so, you know, with Orlo, that's something that we do. So when our patients come in as a first visit, we usually, and there's times we take it away, obviously, but we usually recommend some sort of multivitamin because I don't know where they're getting their vegetables, where they're getting their foods, if the soil's good quality. Um, we recommend omega-3s, at least a thousand milligrams a day. We recommend a probiotic. Absolutely. We recommend vitamin D with these long, dark winters, almost everyone I've ever checked is vitamin D deficient. And we know that's worse in patients with obesity. So it's fairly universal. Um, and then some of our patients will put on chromium because that helps with insulin resistance. It's not well studied because no supplements are that well studied, but it seems like a good idea. Um, and that's kind of our initial cocktail. I would like all my patients to get their omega-3s from their food. I would like them to get their probiotics from their food. I would like them to get their vitamin D from the sunshine. I would like all of that to happen, but definitely at the initial onset, trying to fix any deficiencies is very important to me. And then to really stay on that through that acute phase of weight loss when they may not be getting all the nutrients they need. Yes, I think they're all really important. There's probably more, but I hate handing people a whole bucket of pills and saying, Let's overwhelm you with this. So I really kind of got it down to like, what are the ones that I want the most? What are the core? Yeah, I think I'm with you on that too, because like I've been in the field of health and nutrition and specifically in supplements for the better part of 25 years now. And I have to say the basics for me are an omega-3. Heck, I'm in the omega-3 industry for this, like the time for a reason. This is probably one of the most studied areas of health when it comes to supplementation. Omega-3s and multivitamins really win, right? Yeah. And doing so in a format... Probiotics win a lot. Yeah, I think probiotics are getting there. Well, probiotics too. Yeah, they're getting there. But sometimes the research is a little overblown as it relates to specific strains of probiotics, and it's also funded by companies. So you'll have to take it with a grain of salt. Yeah, take everything with a grain of salt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But getting the omega 3s in a way where you're not going to burp them up, where your patient compliance will be good. With Orlo, we're doing them in the polar lipid form. So they're up to three times better absorbed. 
and they also don't burp back on you fishy. This is brought to you by Orlo. So listeners of this podcast, watchers, you can use the code NWC10 to get an extra 10% off it at checkout. That includes first subscriptions too, and we're running some cool promos. So check those out. But vitamin D, I want to share with you a couple of things I've learned over the years, because I think it'll also be helpful for our audience. I have Mediterranean descent. And so while if you're watching this on screen, I look rather white. I have blonde hair and white skin. You'd think that I'd be able to construct enough vitamin D if I'm not wearing sunscreen and I'm spending time in the sun in the summer months. Not true. And part of that just has to do with my genetics. I'm not as good at making vitamin D from the sun. And so even if I take my levels at the end of summer, which I've done, and I really only wear sunscreen, generally speaking, on my face, and I'm out there in a bikini on the beaches of Hawaii for some of that summer, my stores are still under 30 and my UL per DL or something like that, I think. You want to see it over 30 and I'm not there. So I supplement, I make sure that I get between 1,000 and 2,000 IU of vitamin D each day. I'm doing that now with Orlo Nutrition's Immunity Boost because vitamin D is one of the things in there. But there are other ways to do it in your diet. And this is a trick I learned. You can take mushrooms, any mushroom that you have that you're cooking with or that you're using in your food and just expose them to light for about a half an hour before you use them. If you put them out in the sun or if you put them out even on your counter in the windowsill, like literally just get them out in visible light for 15 minutes to a half hour. And then when you cook with them, their stores of vitamin D have more than doubled. It's a way to get more nutrition from the food that you're already buying and you're already getting. So there aren't very many sources, food source vitamin D, like another place to get food sources, like if you're doing cod livers or something like that, but how many people are going to go to cod livers or cod liver oil? So usually it's a supplement and they make tiny little soft gels you can get for rather inexpensive if that's easier for you. But generally speaking, I've learned that I need on average about one to 2000 IU of vitamin D a day in order to keep my stores where I want them. That's different for everybody. So typically in your physical, you can get this checked. I'd always recommend you check, don't guess. The same applies to your omega-3s. You can check and see where you're at. We're actually running a campaign now with Orlo where we're covering the costs of Omega Quant's third-party blood test where you just do a blood spot test and you can actually verify your levels of omega-3 and then supplement for three or four months and then recheck again. So if you're interested in that, check out the Tested by You program on orlonutrition.com. That said, I really like to leave our audience with some actionable tips at the end of every episode. And we're really at that point now. So what recommendations would you make that you think are broadly going to help people on their health journeys that they could implement today, especially if they haven't really taken the first step? It definitely comes down to whole foods. The closer you can eat to the way we're designed to eat is beneficial. And then really working on systems and habits and not outcomes, right? What little things can I do now that over time will compound into a healthier outcome? Instead of working backwards from this big audacious goal, really saying, what could I do today? If I just add a salad to my lunch every day, if I do that five days a week for the next 10 years, that's going to have a huge impact on my long-term health. Focus on the little steps because the little steps compound a lot better than really trying to hone in on the end and work backwards. I can't agree more. That is such good advice. I like to look at when I'm now looking at my macros, just looking at 40% of my calories from protein, ideally, 
I'm actually more like 30, 30, so 30 protein, 30 fat, and then 40% carbohydrates. If I'm tracking that and an app for me is the only way I can do that because I don't know how many grams of these things are in these foods, but you know, you can use a free app that like my fitness pal is a free app. If you have a Fitbit, you can use a Fitbit app. If you have like, I have Samsung health, I can use that and I can just go ahead and log the foods that I'm eating and keep a general idea of what my nutrient spread is because otherwise I don't need enough protein. I don't need enough fiber and I get too much salt. I don't think salt is a villain, but it tends to be an indicator of leaning on processed foods more. I was going to say, that's not the salt that you sprinkle on your broccoli. That's the problem. It's the salt that you don't even know you're eating. That's the problem. Right. And it just tends to be an indicator of, oh, I ate too many processed foods today. And so I see the same thing happen with saturated fat. Like these apps will auto calculate that. And I will find that I actually, unbeknownst to me, ate way more saturated fat in a given day because I ate processed foods. And it's probably not the healthiest. Real cheese. I mean, it's not the cheese you're just eating by itself or that, yeah, it's the stuff that's hidden in there that you don't think much about. Yeah, exactly. And so that's why I really love where technology has taken us. So I think whatever you're doing, you probably have a smartphone. You can have access to one of these healthy apps. Just put it on your phone and start logging and see where you are. Because if you know where you are today, then you can plan for tomorrow and the next day make small changes that are going to make a big difference with time because maybe we aren't 100%. We are what we absorb. And if we get the right nutrition, we feel better. And we actually notice, oh, I did these three things today and I feel this much better. Maybe you're more likely to keep those habits going. You can't manage what you don't measure. I mean, that's, it comes down to that. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Well, thank you so much for this time today. I've so enjoyed this conversation. You are a wealth of knowledge and incredible asset, especially to people of Kansas. But I want to say overall, if people want to get in touch with you and what you're doing, how would you like them to reach out? What works best for you? Probably to our company's website, which is heartlandweightloss.com. We're also on Facebook. I think we're Heartland Heartland Weight there because it's too long to get the whole thing on there. I'm on LinkedIn. I do a lot of things on LinkedIn. Journeys Metabolic is my new company, really trying to scale this in a digital format. So journeysmetabolic.com. That's fantastic. There's lots of lots of things to learn. Yeah, there's so much to learn. I will include links to everywhere that you've mentioned and more on our show notes, of course. And those who've watched this podcast or listened, you can always go to the website page for this, the blog post page for this, which will include complete transcripts as well. So if you want to read it, or if you want to drive further through this information, you can find it there. Now, as far as this ongoing conversation goes, I would really love to invite you back to touch on these topics again and just stay connected here. So I just think that this is really going to be valued content for our audience. Thank you so much. I love talking about it. Thank you very much. To find out more about Dr. Courtney Younglove and the work that she's doing, please visit journeysmetabolic.com, which is the new company that she's working with, and also heartlandweightloss.com. The resources they provide there will help you stay on track with your health goals. Now, As we round out today's episode, I want to remind you again that we are here to support your journey. So if you have ideas or thoughts for episodes that we should host in the future, please feel free to reach out. And if you enjoyed today's episode, I hope that you'll subscribe wherever you're listening or watching and leave us a review, a comment, or even share this with your audience. Each of these actions can help us to reach more people and improve more individuals' health. 
Now, as I close today's show, I hope you'll join me by raising a cup of your favorite beverage as I say my closing words. Here's to your health. Thanks for listening to Nutrition Without Compromise. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to learn more, visit orlonutrition.com and join our mailing list. You'll gain access to complete show notes, features, and informative blogs because nutrition shouldn't be an either or. 